Chapter thirty one of the Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter thirty one. In which a witch did dwell in loathly weeds and wilful want all careless of her deeds so choosing solitary to abide far from all neighbours that her devilish deeds and hellish arts from people she might hide and hurt far off unknown whomever she envied fairy queen the health of lucy ashton soon required the assistance of a person more skilful in the office of a sick nurse than the female domestics of the family ailsie gourlay sometimes called the wise woman of Bowden, was the person whom, for her own strong reasons, Lady Ashton selected as an attendant upon her daughter. This woman had acquired a considerable reputation among the ignorant by the pretended cures which she performed, especially in oncomes, as the Scotch call them, or mysterious diseases which baffle the regular physician. Her pharmacopoeia consisted partly of herbs selected in planetary hours, partly of words, signs, and charms, which sometimes, perhaps, produced a favourable influence upon the imagination of her patients. Such was the avowed profession of Lucky Gourley, which, as may well be supposed, was looked upon with a suspicious eye, not only by her neighbours, but even by the clergy of the district. In private, however, she traded more deeply in the occult sciences, for notwithstanding the dreadful punishments inflicted upon the supposed crime of witchcraft, there wanted not those who, steeled by want and bitterness of spirit, were willing to adopt the hateful and dangerous character for the sake of the influence which its terrors enabled them to exercise in the vicinity, and the wretched emolument which they could extract by the practice of their supposed art. Ailsie Gourley was not indeed fool enough to acknowledge a compact with the evil one, which would have been a swift and ready road to the stake and tar-barrel. Her fairy, she said, like Caliban's, was a harmless fairy. Nevertheless, she spayed fortunes, read dreams, composed philters, discovered stolen goods, and made and dissolved matches, as successfully as if, according to the belief of the whole neighbourhood, she had been aided in those arts by Beelzebub himself. The worst of the pretenders to these sciences was that they were generally persons who, feeling themselves odious to humanity, were careless of what they did to deserve the public hatred. Real crimes were often committed under pretense of magical imposture, and it sometimes relieves the disgust with which we read in the criminal records the conviction of these wretches, to be aware that many of them merited as poisoners, suborners, and diabolical agents in secret domestic crimes the severe fate to which they were condemned for the imaginary guilt of witchcraft. Such was Ailsie Gourley, whom, in order to attain the absolute subjugation of Lucy Ashton's mind, her mother thought it fitting to place near her person. A woman of less consequence than Lady Ashton had not dared to take such a step, but her high rank and strength of character set her above the censure of the world, and she was allowed to have selected for her daughter's attendant the best and most experienced sick-nurse and mediciner in the neighbourhood, 
where an inferior person would have fallen under the reproach of calling in the assistance of a partner and ally of the great enemy of mankind. The beldam caught her cue readily and by innuendo, without giving Lady Ashton the pain of distinct explanation. She was in many respects qualified for the part she played, which indeed could not be efficiently assumed without some knowledge of the human heart and passions. Dame Gourley perceived that Lucy shuddered at her external appearance, which we have already described when we found her in the death-chamber of blind Alice, and while internally she hated the poor girl for the involuntary horror with which she saw she was regarded, she commenced her operations by endeavouring to efface or overcome those prejudices which in her heart she resented as mortal offences. This was easily done, for the hag's external ugliness was soon balanced by a show of kindness and interest, to which Lucy had of late been little accustomed. Her attentive services and real skill gained her the ear, if not the confidence, of her patient. And under pretence of diverting the solitude of a sick-room, she soon led her attention captive by the legends in which she was well skilled, and to which Lucy's habit of reading and reflection induced her to lend an attentive ear. Dame Gourley's tales were at first of a mild and interesting character, of fays that nightly dance upon the wold, and lovers doomed to wander and to weep, and castles high where wicked wizards keep their captive thralls. Gradually, however, they assumed a darker and more mysterious character, and became such as, told by the midnight lamp, and enforced by the tremulous tone, the quivering and livid lip, the uplifted skinny forefinger, and the shaking head of the blue-eyed hag, might have appalled a less credulous imagination in an age more hard of belief. The old Sycorax saw her advantage, and gradually narrowed her magic circle around the devoted victim on whose spirit she practised. Her legends began to relate to the fortunes of the Ravenswood family, whose ancient grandeur and portentous authority credulity had graced with so many superstitious attributes. The story of the fatal fountain was narrated at full length, and with formidable additions by the ancient Sibyl. The prophecy quoted by Caleb concerning the dead bride who was to be won by the last of the Ravenswoods had its own mysterious commentary, and the singular circumstance of the apparition seen by the master of Ravenswood in the forest having partly transpired through his hasty inquiries in the cottage of old Alice, formed a theme for many exaggerations. Lucy might have despised these tales if they had been related concerning another family, or if her own situation had been less despondent. But circumstanced as she was, the idea that an evil fate hung over her attachment became predominant over her other feelings, and the gloom of superstition darkened a mind already sufficiently weakened by sorrow, distress, uncertainty, and an oppressive sense of desertion and desolation. Stories were told by her attendant, so closely resembling her own in their circumstances, that she was gradually led to converse upon such tragic and mystical subjects with the beldam, and to repose a sort of confidence in the sibyl, whom she still regarded with involuntary shuddering. Dame Gourley knew how to avail herself of this imperfect confidence. 
she directed Lucy's thoughts to the means of inquiring into futurity, the surest mode, perhaps, of shaking the understanding and destroying the spirits. Omens were expounded, dreams were interpreted, and other tricks of jugglery, perhaps, resorted to, by which the pretended adepts of the period deceived and fascinated their deluded followers. I find it mentioned in the articles of Destay against Ailesley Gourley, for it is some comfort to know that the old hag was tried, condemned, and burned on the top of North Berwick Law, by sentence of a commission from the Privy Council. I find, I say, it was charged against her, among other offences, that she had, by the aid and delusions of Satan, shown to a young person of quality, in a mirror-glass, a gentleman then abroad, to whom the said young person was betrothed, and who appeared, in the vision, to be in the act of bestowing his hand upon another lady. But this and some other parts of the record appear to have been studiously left imperfect in names and dates, probably out of regard to the honour of the families concerned. If Dame Gourley was able actually to play off such a piece of jugglery, it is clear she must have had better assistance to practise the deception than her own skill or funds could supply. Meanwhile, this mysterious visionary traffic had its usual effect in unsettling Miss Ashton's mind. Her temper became unequal, her health decayed daily, her manners grew moping, melancholy, and uncertain. Her father, guessing partly at the cause of these appearances, made a point of banishing Dame Gourley from the castle. But the arrow was shot, and was rankling barb deep in the side of the wounded deer. It was shortly after the departure of this woman that Lucy Ashton, urged by her parents, announced to them, with a vivacity by which they were startled, that she was conscious heaven and earth and hell had set themselves against her union with Ravenswood. Still her contract, she said, was a binding contract, and she neither would nor could resign it without the consent of Ravenswood. Let me be assured, she concluded, that he will free me from my engagement, and dispose of me as you please. I care not how. When the diamonds are gone, what signifies the casket? The tone of obstinacy with which this was said, her eyes flashing with unnatural light, and her hands firmly clenched, precluded the possibility of dispute, and the utmost length which Lady Ashton's art could attain only got her the privilege of dictating the letter by which her daughter required to know of Ravenswood whether he intended to abide by, or to surrender, what she termed their unfortunate engagement. Of this advantage Lady Ashton so far, and so ingeniously, availed herself, that according to the wording of the letter, the reader would have supposed Lucy was calling upon her lover to renounce a contract which was contrary to the interests and inclinations of both. Not trusting even to this point of deception, Lady Ashton finally determined to suppress the letter altogether, in hopes that Lucy's impatience would induce her to condemn Ravenswood unheard and in absence. In this she was disappointed. The time indeed had long elapsed when an answer should have been received from the continent. The faint ray of hope which still glimmered in Lucy's mind was well nigh extinguished. But the idea never forsook her, that her letter might not have been duly forwarded. 
one of her mother's new machinations unexpectedly furnished her with the means of ascertaining what she most desired to know. The female agent of hell having been dismissed from the castle, Lady Ashton, who, wrought by all variety of means, resolved to employ, for working the same end on Lucy's mind, an agent of a very different character. This was no other than the Reverend Mr. Bidebent, a Presbyterian clergyman, formerly mentioned, of the very strictest order and the most rigid orthodoxy, whose aid she called in upon the principle of the tyrant in the tragedy, I'll have a priest shall preach her from her faith, and make it sin not to renounce that vow which I'd have broken. But Lady Ashton was mistaken in the agent she had selected. His prejudices, indeed, were easily enlisted on her side, and it was no difficult matter to make him regard with horror the prospect of a union betwixt the daughter of a God-fearing, professing, and Presbyterian family of distinction, and the heir of a bloodthirsty prelatist and persecutor, the hands of whose fathers had been dyed to the wrists in the blood of God's saints. This resembled, in the divine's opinion, the union of a Moabitish stranger with a daughter of Zion. But with all the more severe prejudices and principles of his sect, Bide the Bent possessed a sound judgment, and had learnt sympathy even in that very school of persecution where the heart is so frequently hardened. In a private interview with Miss Ashton, he was deeply moved by her distress, and could not but admit the justice of her request to be permitted a direct communication with Ravenswood upon the subject of their solemn contract. When she urged to him the great uncertainty under which she laboured, whether her letter had been ever forwarded, the old man paced the room with long steps, shook his grey head, rested repeatedly for a space on his ivory-headed staff, and, after much hesitation, confessed that he thought her doubts so reasonable that he would himself aid in the removal of them. "'I cannot but opine, Miss Lucy,' he said, "'that your worshipful lady mother hath in this matter an eagerness, whilk, although it arises doubtless from love to your best interests here and hereafter, for the man is of persecuting blood.' and himself a persecutor, a cavalier or malignant, and a scoffer, who hath no inheritance in Jesse. Nevertheless, we are commanded to do justice unto all, and to fulfil our bond and covenant, as well to the stranger as to him who is in brotherhood with us. Wherefore myself, even I myself, will be aiding unto the delivery of your letter to the man Edgar Ravenswood, trusting that the issue thereof may be your deliverance from the nets in which he hath sinfully engaged you, and that I may do in this neither more nor less than hath been warranted by your honourable parents. I pray you to transcribe, without increment or subtraction, the letter formerly expedied under the dictation of your right honourable mother, and I shall put it into such sure course of being delivered that if honourable young madam you shall receive no answer it will be necessary that you conclude that the man meaneth in silence to abandon that naughty contract which peradventure he may be unwilling directly to restore lucy eagerly embraced the expedient of the worthy divine a new letter was written in the precise terms of the former and consigned by mr bidebent to the charge of saunders moonshine a zealous elder of the church when on shore, 
and when on board his brig as bold a smuggler as ever ran out a sliding bowsprit to the winds that blow betwixt camp Vere and the east coast of scotland at the recommendation of his pastor saunders readily undertook that the letter should be securely conveyed to the master of ravenswood at the court where he now resided this retrospect became necessary to explain the conference betwixt miss ashton her mother and bucklaw which we have detailed in a preceding chapter lucy was now like the sailor who while drifting through a tempestuous ocean clings for safety to a single plank his powers of grasping it becoming every moment more feeble and the deep darkness of the night only checkered by the flashes of lightning hissing as they show the white tops of the billows in which he is soon to be engulfed week crept away after week and day after day st jude's day arrived the last and protracted term to which lucy had limited herself and there was neither letter nor news of ravenswood End of chapter 31